I first felt to entitle the message this morning, The Difference One Person Can Make. But as the week progressed, I felt to give the title, Agents of Change. I want to illustrate in this way. A few months after I was widowed in my first marriage, I had an appointment with Dr. Slaughter in Clifton Forge for dentist. When I came out of that examining room into the foyer, into the the, uh, seating area, there was a member of a congregation whom I was well acquainted with. And I do not say this in a negative way, but this was one who loved the gossip by her own words. The question was asked of me, how are you doing? And I responded to that question, how was I doing being recently grieved? And then I said, I would like to tell you what I'm doing. And she asked, what are you doing? I said, I'm doing all I can to wake churches up to start making a greater impact in their communities for the witness of God's love, his grace, his salvation, and the life that we're to share together and the promise of everlasting life. Her jaw dropped and she said nothing and I left. The difference one person can make. We're called the agents of change. What this means is that God works in and through the life and the opportunities of life of any person, man, woman, young person, who is submitted and obedient to him and to his word. It's not based on whether one is a man or woman, a teenager or a child, each one can make a positive difference in the witness of God's love, grace, salvation. We all know the damage that one person can do when either that person does not know Jesus or if it's a Christian who gives into his or her own carnal nature. We've heard the stories about high school and workplace and shopping mall shootings when classmates and staff and employees are killed by an angry, disgruntled, and disturbed student. We've heard of the reports of carjackings even in the nation's capital. And some of us are old enough to remember, and we shall never forget, the impact that was made 9-11-2001 When terror struck our nation's capital, the horror of that. We've read and watched TV and stories about serial killers, about the horrors of Saddam Hussein and Joseph Stalin and Adolf Hitler. And today, I would put Putin of Russia Russia in that same category. Without any doubt, one person can bring a great deal of hurt, cause a large amount of death and destruction, and cause so much damage in relationships and bring disgrace upon the glory of God. On the other hand, one person, each one of us here this morning, one person can make a positive difference both on the local 
level, in the churches, in the community, in the school, and maybe even impact our own nation and the greater world. In Christ, you and I are called to be agents of positive change, both within the local church, within the community, knowing that our actions can make a positive and dramatic difference in the lives of those to whom we exemplify grace, compassion, care, that we exemplify God's love flowing in and through us. The change that is brought through our witness because we know Jesus as our Savior and we want to honor and serve him as our Lord can be tremendous. Think for a minute about Mother Teresa, Gandhi of India, Martin Luther of Germany, or Martin Luther King of the Civil Rights Movement. Think about the far-reaching impact still to this day of the Reverend Billy Graham, and now, in a similar but yet different way, his son Franklin. Think about the difference your life and your witness has made in the home, in the community, the school, in the church. Each one who knows and who honors the Lord Jesus and strives to be faithful to him and to his word, we can make such a positive, far-reaching difference for the kingdom of God. I think about those who volunteer here in the church, children's church, for example, or the children's sermon that we heard a moment ago, or Jan and Linda with the music, or you and I using our voices and our influence to glorify God and in the manner in which we live and speak, how we can help bring positive change. I'm burdened by the fact that too many congregations are in decline. Too many congregations have internal issues that drive people away instead of drawing people to them. Too many churches have become complacent, comfortable, self-focused, and even conflicted. And that is not honoring to God. But we are to be thankful for those who would go about doing good. I think about those who minister and work in the hospitals, the nursing homes, the schools, those who volunteer in disaster relief, who work with the rescue squad, the fire departments, and the law enforcement officers, and more and more, including those who provide care in our nursing homes. It's those who give out of the goodness of their heart that make a difference. I think about that person that works in Walmart, a food lion, or in one of the restaurants, and by their smile, by their kindness, and by their willingness to give their best, how it benefits you and me. <clears throat> Just a few days ago, Victoria, Pat, my wife, and Amy Whalen got together at the McIntosh's home and worked all day baking cookies and some candy. Over 600 
bags of cookies and candy were distributed here in this city and even in Clifton Forge by those who went and gave their time being agents of change, making a positive difference. Pat called that week RAK, R-A-K. What in the world? Making uh, random acts of kindness. My point is that we should never underestimate the significance that one person can do for what is either good or for what is harmful and detrimental to society and hurtful to persons' lives. And so this morning, for the next few minutes, I want us to look in the Scripture at one of the most interesting characters in the Old Testament. This is the story of one man who made a difference in the nation of Israel and its people. And in his life, his example is a worthy example for ours today. I'm hoping the attention we give to this prophet, Elijah, can help light or rekindle a fire that burns brightly and powerfully in each one of us as followers of Christ to have a greater re realization that God empowers and he works in and through our lives to impact the lives of others for good. Who was Elijah? He was a prophet. We need to remember, uh, to remember and to know a little bit about the day in which Elijah lived. At that time, the king was named Ahab. Side note, when King Solomon had died, the nation of Israel split into two separate nations, the southern and the northern kingdoms. One part of Israel, known as Judah, followed Solomon's son, Rehoboam. The other included the ten tribes and were called Israel and were led by a man, Jeroboam, with a J. Now, Jeroboam wanted to solidify his hold on the people. And in order to solidify his hold on the people, he gave in to the express wishes of some of the powerful voices of that day who wanted to build their pagan temples and places of worship. Therefore, the king sanctioned and instituted the worship of idols. He compromised his own faith by allowing pagan false religions to be practiced freely within his kingdom. King Ahab was followed by uh, uh, was the seventh king following Jeroboam. It seems that with each new king, the wickedness quickly grew greater and greater. That indicates that the unex ungodly example of one king or the ungodly example of one person in our day the great impact that person can have for good or for ill. I believe that in our own day, poor leadership and ungodly leadership
can bring a nation or even a local church to decline. But godly leaders are blessed by God and can help to restore a church, to restore a community, restore a nation and its people to be honoring God and know that each one is accountable for the life that we live and the things that we do. I'm looking here in 1 Kings chapter 16, verse 30 and 33 at this moment. It says there, Ahab, son of Omri, became a king of Israel, and he reigned in Samaria over Israel 22 years. And Ahab, son of Omri, did more evil in the eyes of the Lord than any of those before him. He not only considered it trivial to commit the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, but he also married Jezebel. And he began to serve Baal and worship him. He set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal that he built in Samaria. Ahab also made Asherah, uh, Asherah pole and did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than did all of the kings of Israel before him. Ahab did more to provoke the wrath of God than all of the kings before him. It is to be known that Ahab was evil. He encouraged idolatry. When he married, he married a pagan wife whose name was given there as Jezebel. Most of us are familiar with the name Jezebel, and we do not choose to name our daughters Jezebel. Not only were temples to the false gods built, There were those who boasted that the God of Israel, that Yahweh, is dead. And it was into that historical situation that God called and commissioned and sent a man, Elijah, to go forth and be a strong voice, an agent of change. We don't know much about Elijah other than what the Bible tells us in this passage. But what we know is good. Elijah's mission and the message he was given to proclaim all emphasized that God, Yahweh, is on his throne and that he holds his people accountable and calls his own people into repentance. First thing I emphasize this morning is that during Elijah's time, God sent a drought. One of the verses says, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Elijah boldly declared that a drought would continue until he sensing that it was God's time that he would declare the drought to end. Now, why send a drought? We have had droughts, the lack of rain at various times, even right here in the Allegheny Highlands. We know that when drought occurs, 
the grass is no longer green, the trees give evidence of the lack of water. We know there may be even be restrictions on the use of water. We know the harmful impact that a mild drought can cause in our own region and time. However, the drought that we read about in the Bible in the days of Elijah was not a minor drought. We learn, for example, in the book of James, chapter 5, verse 17 and 18, that Elijah prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain for three and one-half years. Can you or I imagine if we did not have rain or snow, some manner of precipitation for a year, much less three and a half years? I ask, why would Elijah have prayed for such a drought, a drought that would ultimately last three and a half years? Did he not understand the repercussions and the hardships that such an extended period of drought would bring not only on the individual and the individual household, but upon the nation of its people? Didn't he understand the hardship, the loss of income and jobs, and even the loss of life itself? Elijah may well have had the words found in Deuteronomy chapter 11, verse 6, through 17, he may have had these words in mind. Deuteronomy 11, 16 and 17 says, Beware that your hearts are not deceived, and that you do not turn away and serve other gods and worship them. Or the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will shut up the heavens so that there will be no rain, and the ground will not yield its fruit and you will perish quickly from the good land which the Lord is giving you. I don't think Elijah volunteered for this job. God called him, and he was obedient. He was faithful. Elijah understood something that we too often forget in our own day. He knew that spiritual death is much worse, much more worse than physical discomfort, than physical death. He knew that spiritual lostness is much worse than being spiritually saved. He knew that the example of a compromised and weak faith is always an influence on others who are weak. Both in his day and in our day, there are certain people who do as they see their leaders do. They do as they see you or I do. And hopefully what they see in your life, in my life, encourages them to do good, to show kindness and compassion, and to be one who wants and desires that others will come to know Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. I believe that even today, when God's people forget to obey God, to heed His Word, that God brings His discipline 
into that life, into that church, into that nation. There's another reason that Elijah prayed for a drought. Ahab and Queen Jezebel had introduced this pagan religion of Baal to the people. The worshipers of Baal believed that that pagan god was the god of rain. Elijah was declaring to the people that Yahweh, the true God, he is the one who has the power to send or to withhold the rain. Elijah wanted the people to know there is only one God. Then I look in 1 Kings chapter 17, verses 2 through 6. After Elijah had delivered his message, God told Elijah to get out of town. And we read there in 1 Kings chapter 2, uh, 17, verses 2 through 6. The word of the Lord came to Elijah. Leave here, turn eastward, and hide in the Kerith Ravine east of Jordan. <clears throat> Get this, you will drink from the brook, a brook. Have you ever drank from a fresh running water? I have. Hide, uh, <clears throat> and I have ordered the ravens. Have you ever been fed by the ravens? This morning, as Pat and I were sitting in our sunroom, we have bird feeders in the backyard, in the front yard. We spend an exorbitant amount on bird seed. Periodically, we see these big, beautiful blackbirds, the ravens. And there was one sitting out on a bush looking at the other birds that were eating the seed from the feeders. And I said to Pat, I wish that I could in some way Grab that raven and bring him here this morning for an illustration, but I couldn't. But what we just read here in the Scripture, God was saying to Elijah, you will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you. And so he did what the Lord had told him. He went to Kareth ravine east of Jordan and stayed there and the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening and he drank from the brook. Elijah did just what God instructed him to do. God didn't send him on a simple preaching mission. God sent Elijah as a prophet to call the people, to confront the people for their waywardness and to call them in repentance back to God. And when they didn't listen, there came a drought that would last that three and a half years. Now, I don't know about you, but if God had sent me to go into an out-of-the-way place, and you're going to drink water from the brook, I'm okay with that. But if I felt God was saying... You're going to be fed by the ravens. Don't worry about it. I'm going to send them to bring you meat and bread. I would have to admit, I would have some misgivings about that. I'd have numerous questions, but the Bible does not give us any indication 
of Elijah's hesitation or the expression of his anxiety about what he was going to eat or how the food was going to be delivered for him day after day. Instead, Elijah trusted God. And isn't that exactly what God expects and wants from his people, you and me today, that we trust him and that we are obedient to his instructions, even if, even if and when it may cause some discomfort and seem out of the ordinary. For his part, Elijah evidently was confident of God's love and of God's promise to care and provide for him in that out-of-way place, both for water to drink and food to eat. And there's no indication that he quibbled or argued about how the food was going to be delivered. You and I should also be confident of God's care and the importance of our trusting in his promises when we are obedient to do that which he has called and instructed us to do. As time went on, Elijah saw that the water in the brook was getting lower and lower. He was visibly seeing the impact of the drought as the stream was running low. He waited. He waited for God to give him further instruction. And finally, one day, God spoke again to Elijah and told him, what he was to do, that he was to go to Zarapa, that was a hundred miles at least from where he had been hiding. It was over rugged, harsh land. Elijah did not complain, no indication that he complained. Rather, he simply got up and went. We might wonder, well, did the ravens follow him and continue to bring him something to eat? And was drinking water miraculously supplied? I don't know, but I have to assume that Elijah was cared for. When Elijah arrived at that next destination, the Bible tells us that he saw a woman at the gate who was picking up a few sticks to create a small fire. And Elijah asked her for water. He also asked, could you give me something to eat? She told Elijah that she had barely enough flour and oil to make a small meal for herself and for her son. In fact, she told him she believed that this would be their last meal, that their food was nearly gone, and with that her hope had vanished and that she and her son would die. Elijah asked her again for something to drink and something to eat. In fact, in asking that second time, he promised her that God would make sure that she never ran out of flour and oil. Can you put yourself in that woman's shoes for just a moment? Suppose you were stranded because of a hurricane or devastating fire or earthquake. Suppose you were running out of your last food and water itself was in short supply and here came a stranger and asked for something to drink and a little something to eat. 
probably you, like that woman, say, actually, this is the last food and drink I have. After this, we will probably just give up and die. But Elijah said to her, you shall have the flour and the oil. That will be provided. God promises it to be so. If we're honest with ourselves and with God, sometimes we have to admit that we choose comfort over holiness, indifference over confrontation, whining over praying, amusements over serving, complaining over gratitude, compromise over sacrifice. But the Bible tells us that that woman chose to share out of her meager and last provisions. I think it's unlikely that she had any idea who Elijah was. And yet, in that moment, she chose to be generous with what she had. She chose to believe the promise that he had spoken. And as a result, the Bible tells us that both Elijah, that woman, and her son never ran out of the flour or oil during the entire time of that drought. That story continues all the way on into and through First Kings chapter 18. And so one thing we need to understand, this story really isn't about Elijah. This story is about God. This is the story about the God whom Elijah served, who is also the God that you and I serve. It's about how one man and one woman who believed what she heard Elijah say, how one man and one woman with a heart and will surrender to God can make a difference and see God's provision. This past year, after Christmas, I made a trip to Indiana to see a daughter and her family whom I adopted Jane when she was 10. I went to see a couple in the Indianapolis area. That's a whole nother story, but I enjoyed the time with them, dinner and breakfast the next morning. I drove to Kokomo, Indiana to see my best friend Mike and his family, and incidentally, he, their oldest daughter and a grandchild, are coming down in the spring and will be staying with Pat and myself as they take their daughter to UVA to get ready for fall classes. And I look forward again to seeing them so soon after Christmas. But anyway, when I left Kokomo, I drove to Muncie to see a granddaughter, the oldest child of a father whom I adopted when he was 10 years old. He's deceased. And as I got into Muncie, the red Dodge van that I bought last year in May, the transmission began to slip. I went ahead to her house. I parked it. And when I left and got in each stoplight, it was acting up more and more. I pulled over and used my phone to Google a Chrysler dealership 
And I called and I said, I'm from Virginia, but my Dodge van, the transmission, is failing. I was able to make it there. I had to leave it there. Replacement of a transmission, $6,000. I say that to say this. I'm thankful that I have learned to have some resources in reserve. But I also have said to Pat, as we have been married these years, this goes back many years ago, when there was an unexpected major expense that came I developed the practice of going out and celebrating. Kind of what you were saying, Jan, that when we sing, these good things flow in the Bible, that, in the body that put down the bad things. When we sing and praise God, we can expect God to receive our praise and to bless in unexpected, sometimes even dramatic ways. And so I've had a practice for many years. When some big expense, unexpected, comes like that, I go out and celebrate. So Pat and I went out for steak and shrimp dinner. This account about Elijah reminds us that our God is the God over all of creation. And that includes the moon where a craft landed just a few days ago for the first time since, what, 1972. And God gives men and women the ability to use their minds and their thinking ability to design and engineer and see a craft leave this atmosphere and reach into the out there. God works in and works through the heart and the life of those persons of faith who are faithful and obedient to him, and dramatic and wonderful things can come. Your life and mine here on earth is really not about you, it's not about me. It's about God and who you and I are for him. This account about Elijah reminds us again that God is the God in control of all of creation, the seen and the unseen. And we're also to be reminded that God usually doesn't tell us what the second step is until we've taken the first step. And sometimes taking, taking the first step of faith is the most challenging. But it's when we take that first step that then he reveals the next step and the next step. Oftentimes we don't know the second step until we have taken that first one. I sometimes wonder how often I have missed an opportunity because God had asked me to do something out of the ordinary and I held back in fear and unbelief. Perhaps it was to reach out to another person in a specific way and particular time, but I didn't do so because of fear. I wonder how many of those opportunities have passed because I wanted to wait for a more convenient time. What I have learned as I continue to grow as I continue to grow and to mature in faith. What I am learning is that God wants us to walk in faith, 
not hold back in fear. He wants us to be bold and to be obedient, to do what he calls and directs his people to do. We're called to be agents of change, doing our part to impact our communities as salt, holding down corruption, as light that shines brightly without uh, a fading so that we can bring about positive, healthy change within our communities. I oftentimes wonder what would happen if every Christian prayed for their country as Elijah prayed. What would happen if each of us really started praying for the welfare of our nation, our community, our church, and for the spiritual welfare of those in this community who still yet need to come to Jesus even though they don't yet realize it. But how will they hear unless his people go? How will they hear unless we use our voices and our influence and our opportunities to make them aware that God knows them by name? He knows their coming and their going. He knows their past, their present, and their future. And God wants each one to know what their eternal destiny is that it will be heaven and not that place of judgment. In closing, let us observe that God can use anyone who puts their trust and their faith in him and decides day after day to take that step of faith and obedience. It's always a question of the heart. The name you and I make for ourselves is not really what's important. What is important is that we are faithful to God. Billy Graham, Dwight L. Moody, Elijah, the widow that he petitioned for a little bit to eat and something to drink. They had one thing in common. They were humbled and submitted to be used by God for his purpose and for his glory. That's what God wants each of us to do, to have a willingness of heart to be used for his kingdom purpose and for his glory. And when we make that submission, God can work things that we ourselves cannot imagine. As we prepare to sing the closing hymn, let this be a personal challenge, an invitation for each of us to be renewed in our faith in God, to be renewed in the promises that God has made known in his word, to be renewed in our recalling of how he has provided, how he has delivered in times past when we may have despaired. Commit yourself and you to be used by God for his purpose, his glory, to stand up and do what needs to be done, whether it's to teach children, to minister to youth, to be involved in prayer and Bible study on Sunday mornings or Wednesday night, or to someone in your neighborhood or in your circle of personal influence, that tomorrow, the day after, 
It's the smile you give. It's the words you say. It's the prayer you have offered. It's the difference that we're called to make. Perhaps someone here today has a decision that you feel led to make regarding receiving Christ as Savior, beginning that journey anew as one recommitted to faithfulness to Him as both Lord and Savior. As we sing this closing hymn, Standing on the Promise,